This episode of Friday Egg Stories is brought to you by Precision Pro Golf Rangefinders. As I'm sure you're aware, the holidays are approaching, and Precision Pro is getting in on the spirit of the season. If you go to precisionprogolf.com right now, you will find a holiday sale that can get you up to $30 off on a rangefinder for yourself or for a golfer in your life. Precision Pro stuff is absolutely top of the line and very affordable, even when it's not on sale. So go to precisionprogolf.com and check out their holiday sale. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a a fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. It's not to be feared, though. It's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. It is September 14th. 2021. I'm at Gearheart Golf Links in Gearheart, Oregon. That's the northern Oregon coast. And I'm at the U.S. Hickory Open. It is a beautiful morning. You can hear the ocean nearby. Hear that? Uh, But you can't see it from here. And I'm just going to follow some folks around and see if there are any stories here. Maybe you can hear that note of doubt in my voice. I'm at the U.S. Hickory Open, the second and final round, pretty much on a whim. I live about two hours from Gearhart and figured I had no excuse. But I arrived, looked around, and realized I was kind of a stranger in a strange land. So, if you don't know much about Hickory Golf, first of all, that makes two of us, but the main thing you should be aware of up front is the rule about equipment. In the U.S. Hickory Open, which is put on by the Society of Hickory Golfers, you need to play with wooden shafted clubs from 1935 or before, or you can use replicas of those models. Simple enough, but as I walk around the practice screen recording, I find myself just a little puzzled by it all. Most of the women are in long skirts and blouses, and most of the men have plus fours or plus twos on, you know, the pants that kind of hang below the knee and billow out a bit. And I try to imagine myself taking part in this world. And I can't quite do it. There's finally Maitland after 14 hours. It's not just the fashion, which honestly some people pull off really well. It's the idea of giving up the comforts of modern golf. Look, I love the history of the game, but I think I'd have a hard time actually living it. Giving up the big drivers, the big putters, the space age materials, all the things that are supposed to make golf more manageable and make me a better player. I mean, This is a hard game. Why would you choose to make it harder? I'm Garrett Morrison, and this is Fried Egg Stories. Today, a collection of conversations from the U.S. Hickory Open. Or really, I should call it a series of efforts to understand 21st century Hickory golf, where it came from, how it's played, and why some people get absolutely hooked by it. When I get to Gearhart Golf Links, 
some players are already out on the course, but it'll be a couple of hours before the leaders in the open division tee off. I'm trying to get my bearings, so I look through the tee sheet. And right there in the final group, I see a familiar name, Colin McNamara. I'm a writer, I write poems, and I teach at Washington State University. He's also written a few things for the Fried Egg website, which is how I know him. And you're here at the U.S. Hickory Open. Is this the first time you've been in an event like this? It's the first time I've been in an event this big. I have played in several Hickory tournaments, um, but this is, a, this is another animal. Apparently Colin was ready, though. He posted a good score in the first round, 76. I hit it pretty well. Um, a couple bad shots. You know, that, that's where hickory golf really diverges from modern golf. It's much less forgiving. So I had a couple terrible shots, um, but thankfully no television cameras caught those. And then I made a lot of putts, so I ended up with a really good score. So he's going into the second and final round in fourth place, two shots back. Colin McNamara is younger than your typical Hickory player. He's in his late 20s now, and he's been playing exclusively with vintage clubs for about five years. It started, I think I saw something online at first, and, you know, I bought a club at an antique store, fixed it up, you know, played with it, bought another couple clubs. Pretty soon I'm traveling around to, to play in tournaments and dressing in my homemade knickers, so. Wait. Homemade knickers? Yeah, I'd say they're effectively plus fours. I sewed a little band of elastic into a pair of Goodwill pants, and, you know, I put the elastic up around my knee and draped the rest over the sock, and it looks authentic enough to get by with this crowd. I find that Colin has a nice way of explaining things. He doesn't take himself too seriously, but he knows his stuff, and he's incredibly passionate about hickory golf. It occurs to me that he could serve as a kind of guide for me today. And who knows, he could very well win the tournament. So I make a mental note to keep checking in with Colin throughout the day. Yep. Okay, perfect. That's, that's good. I'll let you prepare yourself mentally for, uh, for battle, and uh, good luck. Thank you so much, Garrett. Appreciate it. Chapter 1. John Henry versus the industry. I'm starting to get the lay of the land at the U.S. Hickory Open, and what I see is a few main hubs of activity. There's the practice screen and the first tee. There's the area around the scoreboard, which is just a big dry erase board on wheels. And then between the parking lot and the clubhouse, there's an outdoor workshop staffed by a man named John Henry Williams. John Henry Williams. Professionally, I'm retired, but as a hobby, I repair golf clubs. Specifically, John Henry repairs and restores the types of clubs being used today. In fact, he's one of the very best at it. His workshop has a mixture of things. Some you could find at most hardware stores. Cordless drill. Uh, files are probably the biggest thing I use a lot of. Others you've probably never seen before. Uh, well, I have a, a shaft straightening machine. Uh, it's a wood plank with some round knobs on it that a gentleman in Vermont invented to straighten wood shafted clubs. Now, John Henry would prefer to be playing today, but... Uh, three weeks ago, I was, I was diagnosed with a subdural hematoma. And so the doctor said no golf for at least a month, which, like, killed me. I've been waiting for this event for two years. So the second best thing for me to do was to bring my 
temporary or my roll-in cart and do golf club repair for people down here that needed something done. You know, these are old clubs, and they just sometimes need a little tender, loving care. Yeah. yeah. It looks like you have a, a customer right here, in fact. Go, come on in. It's all right. <laughs> very, yes, very sir. casual interview here. I understand you're the man that put face inserts, face inserts in. I, I can do that, yes. Uh, yeah. Good. People keep approaching John Henry throughout the morning. Some have questions about a particular club. Others need this or that small repair, like re-whipping the black thread around the neck of a wood. Yeah, this is fairly simple to do. Um, the girly here thought he would just um, explain to him why the whipping is there and glue it on. But you don't glue it on; you have to whip it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can glue it on, but it doesn't stay very well. And what I'm picking up on is that a builder like John Henry is a key fulcrum in the hickory world. Like, everything relies on these old clubs being playable, and he keeps them that way. To do that, he has to maintain a highly specific skill set, one that, frankly, doesn't have much market value these days. So how and why does someone become a master of this particular craft? Uh, well, I grew up playing golf. My, was, I had asthma, so the biggest thing I could do was play golf. My dad introduced me to golf when I was eight, and gave me some plastic clubs and a ball, and I just went and hit them and grew up on a farm in Virginia, so I had lots of room to go hit golf balls everywhere. John Henry went on to play in high school and college and ended up working as a club pro. And then got out of the business because I realized as a country club professional, you have to walk the line, and you can't be somebody that gives your opinion. And if you ask me what I think, I tell you, and that's never going to be a good thing. You know, so... So I realized I needed to do something else. And I loved golf clubs and started collecting clubs. I'd go to flea markets, go to garage sales and pick them up and then take them back to the garage and kind of tear them apart and see how they were put back together. It's more of a hobby, just messing around. And then there were people who said, well, you got skills to do this. So, well, okay. So around 1976, John Henry went into business as a club repair guy. But around him, the industry was changing. Metal-headed woods came out in the late 70s, and at first they didn't make too much of a dent in John Henry's persimmon wood business, but then they started to show up on the PGA Tour. In 1984, Lee Trevino became the first player to win a major with a metal-headed driver. A new PGA record of 15 under par and the first champion to ever shoot four rounds under 70 in a PGA championship and win, and you ought to kiss that putter, Lee. Uh, when Metal Woods hit the tour, the persimmon market was dead because everybody wants to play what the guys on tour are playing. So Metal Woods just changed the club repair business. It, nobody needed to have a Metal Wood refinished. The golf balls didn't chew them up. There's no expense in repair. And it was just something that my market in repair business just went in the toilet and you could hear the flush. <laughs> but it wasn't just the financial realities that had changed. The work itself had become something totally different. Metal Woods, uh, it's mostly computerized now. I mean, it really is. They're, they're not taking a piece of clay and, and saying, let's shape it this way, or let's take a piece of wood and rasp this out and cut this insert in. And it's not a bad thing. I'm not trying to poo-poo the idea that they don't have any skills, because they do, but it's not handcrafted. It's not taking 
a piece of wood by hand and and running a file across it until you get the shape and you you run your fingers across it and you get the feel if you don't like that well I'll change it a little bit or how am I going to add a little bit of weight to this thing it's it's none of that anymore I think most of it is done today by computers and no I'm not interested in doing that that's I, I like being able to hand work a golf club. So John Henry changed paths again. He went to work at Sandpoint Country Club in Seattle, mowed greens, raked bunkers, and eventually became the assistant superintendent. After he retired, he kept working part-time in the pro shop, but he needed something else to do with his time. As it turned out, just outside the gate at Sandpoint was a club repair shop run by Jim Von Lasso, incidentally, the father of Andrew Von Lasso, who's leading the U.S. Hickory Open as we speak. And I went over to his shop a couple of times, taking clubs from Sandpoint. And once I walked through the front door, I'm going, you know, I, this is just so familiar, and I, I, I miss doing this. So when I retired, I just fixed up a little spot downstairs in the basement and started working on golf clubs again. And it's just, I have a hoot. Since it was mostly a hobby now, not a business, John Henry was free to work on the clubs he wanted to work on. The old stuff. The handcrafted stuff. The craftsmanship is unbelievable of what these guys used to do. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm never, uh, I'm in awe of the different clubs that I take apart um, about how they put them together back in the day. And they weren't using the machinery that we have nowadays. These are guys that are, you know, hand drilling things or augering things out. And it, it's, I would love to go back and watch some of these craftsmen put clubs together. Even the, the guys in the pre-1900 clubs were truly craftsmen. And, and the stuff that they did, I think is like, it's a work of art. It really is. It doesn't look like it, but let me hand you two pieces of wood and you go do it. Um, so when I can take those clubs and, and get a chance to work on them, it's just like, okay, this is part of history. And so I'm working on history and and that's, that's the cool part. Nobody gets, uh, confused out there and, uh, yeah, you got your own individual markings. That would be great. Look at that. Oh, oh look at this gonna be. I played with a pink and white one one pink time, and but, one. but I had to give up because the other guy said, "What number?" <laughs> <laughs> so here's here's the kind of rundown. Maybe. My name is Zdravko Barbic, and I am the head golf professional at Gearhart Golf Links. I go by Z because it's easier for everybody to pronounce. I am. Uh, Enjoying the sunshine and uh, watching these wonderful people play golf and uh, doing the starting on the first tee. It is our 11.30 tee time from Port Townsend, Washington. Rob Beerman. Could you uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Rob Berman. I'm one of the co-founders of Northwest Hickory Players. And what are we doing right now? We are just off the first tee, center cut, 140 yards in, on a 65-degree day in perfect weather on the seaside of Oregon. Final round of the U.S. Hickory Open. None of my group's in contention, so we're here to have fun. Chapter 2. Rob Berman Plays a Hole. 
So at this point, John Henry Williams has helped me understand the appeal of Hickory Golf Clubs as objects, the history behind them, the craftsmanship that goes into them. But now I need to see what it's actually like to play them. So I pull aside Rob Berman as he's walking off the fifth green. I ask him if he can talk me through all of his shots on the next hole, the sixth. And he says, sure. He might end up regretting that. All right. So what's the plan on this hole? This is a tricky hole. It's got a blind approach. Uh, It's all uphill. So the trick for me is getting out far enough that I can have a comfortable club into the screen. So what are you going to hit here? I'm going to hit my my brassy, which is my driving club. It's uh, 12 degrees. Hoping to hit 220 if I if I'm lucky. How'd that shot go? Well, Garrett, with a uphill fairway, like so many people, I tend to try harder than I should. Pulled that too far left. Changes the whole plan. Now I'll try to punch it up to 100 yards and wedge it on. It's out. Stop. <laughs> I've proven to be bad luck for you so far. No, <laughs> so that one uh, is uh, is in a fairway bunker, but back in the whole corridor. We did, Garrett. We did have a few players that walked off the course yesterday, and there's two schools of thought on that. You know, uh, most of us don't take it too internal. You know, if we're not playing well. Very nice. You know, like like a lot of tournaments that are accessible to a lot of different people, there are those who are very competitive and Absolutely. then those who just want to have fun. Yeah, and we have, we have pros playing in this tournament and rank amateurs. And we've got players from 18 to 80. And it, that's what's so much fun. You meet new people and you share what you love. Fairway bunker shot, what club are you going to have here? I'm going to use my 8-iron, which is the equivalent of a pitching wedge, just to get out of this fairly low bunker and try to leave myself an angle into this very hard pin. Rake, all right, we're on the fairway. <laughs> all right, the approach. Wow. Now that was a nifty shot. Tell me about that. That's my 140-yard club from 112 yards. So that's just a little knockdown shot, as Harry Varden would call it, a push shot. First good shot of the hole. <laughs> All right. So you've got a putt. Could you tell me a little bit, a little bit about your putter? Yeah, I've got a pretty special putter. It's a Jean Gassier. Jean Gassier won the 1912 French Open. He played out of Chantilly, France. And after his win in 1912, this putter model became popular. It's a beautiful club. It's a, it's a wooden putter head, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know what you compare it to. It's like, a, to, it's a mallet with toe hang. Yeah, they used to call it the, the piano because it's kind of shaped like a grand piano. It's pretty uncommon. One, two, three, four, five. Oh, he's got about a 10 footer for six, but it's been fun talking about all the different clubs. I mean, the cool thing is that each club has a story, right? Each club has some homemade elements and has decades of history behind it. I think that's a big part of the appeal of this kind of golf, you know. It's not just nostalgia, right? 
you're playing with these things in the present. And they have kind of beauty, integrity, craftsmanship in and of themselves. And he missed the putt for six. That's a seven. He might have missed the shorty too. I was, I wanted to ask you, like, so one of the ideas of, one of the selling points, I suppose, of modern equipment mm -hmm. and, and the attempt that it makes is to reduce the number of times a player has a bad hole. And so, you know, when you have a bad hole with your hickory clubs, what is your attitude towards it? Yeah, I suppose you can be way more forgiving on yourself if you have a bad hole because there's so little forgiveness in these clubs. You know, that's the beauty of hickory golf. You get these clubs and you have to learn them. It takes time to learn them. Some clubs you never can hit. And occasionally you find a club that's just suited perfectly for you. Yeah. And you know, Garrett, it all comes down to fundamentals of your swing. And if those aren't tuned, it doesn't matter what you have in your hands. Not far from where I leave Rob is the fourth tee. I wait there for a few minutes, and the final group arrives. Andrew Von Lasso is still leading, and Colin McNamara is telling me that he sucks. Literally, he says, Garrett, I suck. He's three over through three, and things don't improve on the fourth hole. He hits his tee shot over the green, over a low wooden fence, out of bounds. His provisional does almost the same thing, but stops short. After his drive on the fifth hole, a good one, I catch up with him in the fairway. Tell me how it's gone so far. Oh, not good so far. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> not good so far, Dottie. <laughs> what, what's your state of mind like at the moment? Yeah, I feel, I feel fine. I, it's going to take some made putts to get back into it. Uh, right now, I think I'm down seven <laughs> after starting down two so i've got a little work to do but uh yeah just gotta make some putts It'll, it can change in a hurry season two of fried egg stories is made possible by precision pro golf all right, I told you at the top of the episode about the holiday sale going on at precisionprogolf.com. Lots of great deals there right now, but I want to zero in on one in particular, and that's $30 off the NX9 Slope Rangefinder. The NX9 Slope happens to be my rangefinder, and it's really fantastic. I love the pulse vibration feature. Basically, you get this little buzz when you lock onto the flagstick, which just gives you this serene sense of confidence that you're getting the right number. And that's what it's all about. Confidence in the club you've chosen and the shot you're playing. Another benefit you get with a Precision Pro rangefinder like the NX9 Slope is industry-leading customer service. You'll talk to an actual person quickly and get any information or help you need. So if you're looking to step up your game or get an awesome gift, check out the holiday sale at precisionprogolf.com. So, uh, so, so tell me about why, why you guys are uh, sitting out here watching the action. Well, because this is we, the U.S. Open Hickory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't. I mean, we play this course all the time. Yeah. So yeah. it's fun to watch. Yeah. 
these guys hit the ball. And I we've mean, been anticipating <laughs> this for about two years. Yeah, right. I right. mean, and uh, well, the sign's been up for two years. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and and we live right here, and and so we watch a lot of golf, and it's a great place. And, and yeah, those and guys, these guys are, are great. Fun. They are fun. Yeah, it's yeah. Fun. yeah. everybody's having a good time. Yeah. So and yeah. just yeah. to see these guys yeah. hit it further than where we I do. Can't, I can't hit it as far as they do, and I've got high tech stuff. Chapter three. Tad Moore and the Society. A crowd is slowly thickening around the scoreboard by the clubhouse. Right in the middle of it is an older man sitting in a chair. Periodically, people come up to him and shake his hand. Yeah, this is Tad Moore. I'm a, uh... There are a couple of ways you might have heard of Tad Moore. Maybe the main one is through the line of milled putters he did with Max Fly in the 90s and early 2000s. You know that famous picture of Ian Woosnam winning the Masters, throwing a big uppercut fist pump? If you look in his other hand, he's holding a Max Fly Tad Moore putter. But if you're a hickory player, you may not associate Tad Moore primarily with milled putters. Instead, you probably know him as one of the founding fathers of modern hickory golf. The more I've walked around the U.S. Hickory Open, seen how many people are here and how enthusiastic they are, the more I've wondered how it all got started, how this community formed, even as the rest of the game moved on. I've mentioned this to a few people, and they've all told me, well, you've got to go talk to Tad. Uh, Tad, can you give me an idea of how you got interested in playing older clubs? Yeah, I think that the uh, older clubs, when being a club designer, I wanted to see what people had used in the past because there's really nothing new in golf. I don't care what any of these people say. There's nothing much new. So I had a collection at one time of about 3,500 clubs. And uh, around 1975, a good friend of mine uh, talked me into playing some hickory golf. I did that for a little while and kind of... But there wasn't really anybody in Tad's area in Georgia who wanted to play hickories with him. So he left it alone for a bit. But in 1988, a good friend of mine, Bobby Farino, who was a big club dealer, club collector, he convinced me to go and play in the Golf Collector Society meeting in Palm Springs. Well, interestingly, the Golf Collector's Society, which was the progenitor to the Society of Hickory Golfers, started when I was three years old. It was started in 1970. That's Rob Berman again. In addition to being a good sport about quadruple bogeys, Rob is the host of the Plus Four podcast, which focuses on hickory golf. So I figured he was the right person to fill in some historical background here. From the 1970s for 30 different years, there had been annual conventions of the Golf Collectors Society at various places in the United States. And inevitably, there would be trade shows and these collectors from the U.S. would bring their clubs and they would swap and trade their hickories as well as moderns and steel shafted clubs. At some point between 1970 and the year 2000, they started what they call the Hickory Hacker event, where the collectors would go out, as they say, for grins and giggles to just play their hickory clubs. And often it was a scramble format. Part of it was just a fascination with these incredible antiques, and they wanted to get a feel for what it might have been like back in the day to hit these clubs. It was in one of these Hickory Hacker tournaments that Tad Moore played in 1988. 
So I went out there and played, and uh, I thought I won it, but I didn't. But it really got me enthused about playing with Hickory Golf Club. So from that point, there was probably about 20 guys that were actively playing Hickory Golf in the United States. Uh, as you can imagine, as time went on, some players wanted to become more serious about playing Hickory Clubs steadily. And they didn't want to do the scramble format. They actually wanted to start to do genuine competitions. And this rift developed, from what I understand, between the collectors that just wanted to go out and have a fun time once a year and a cadre of people that included Tad Moore that wanted to actually make more of a commitment to Hickory Golf as a, as a pastime and a hobby. Those of us that play want to feel history. We don't want to look at history. We want to feel it. And so one night at the Dunvegan in uh, St. Andrews, we were all sitting around and uh, had a few pints, and uh, the idea was that we should uh, uh, do something about a group. And it was over some beers at the Dunvegan that Tad and some others uh, decided to get formal about putting together an official society, creating their own set of rules, and really becoming independent from the Golf Collectors Society. This was the beginning of the Society of Hickory Golfers, which was officially founded in the year 2000. First eight years, I was the president, and uh, I was what I like to call a benevolent dictator, and uh, we, we moved forward. The Society of Hickory Golfers now maintains a set of rules, runs a handicap system, and of course puts on the U.S. Hickory Open. Around the same time he helped the Society get started, Tad Moore made another critical move. He began to manufacture hickory-shafted golf clubs, replicas. Again, at a tournament like the U.S. Hickory Open, you're not limited to clubs that were actually built before 1935. You can also play replicas that have been approved by the society. And a lot of players here today have had more replicas in their bag. Really, in my view, there are two people that are on the same level as Tad, Tad being one of them. The other is Mike Just, who passed away a number of years ago. But uh, Mike and Tad, roughly around the same time, there's a debate about who was first. Both of these gentlemen were golf club manufacturers, Mike Just being affiliated with Louisville Golf and Tad with his own company. As the society became popular and fashionable, uh, they both started making their own brand of modern replica hickory golf clubs. Both of these gentlemen sort of helped make the barriers to entry much more accessible for many of us because it's much easier to get into the sport with a unified matched weight set of irons or woods, which really makes that step between modern clubs to the purest hickory game if you're only playing original antiques, very accessible for the average player. And so the beauty of this game is that they can buy a set of replicas from me, get started, uh, because the clubs are going to be exactly what they need to play and the right shafts and right grips and everything. And they can get started, and then if they want to go to the original way, they can. And uh, But today... We ship all over the world. We ship to Australia, we ship to New Zealand, we ship to Germany, Sweden, UK, Scotland, Japan, Canada. I mean, we ship all over the world. So the, the growing society and group of people that play with Hickory Golf Clubs is, is really big. Do you think there's something about the direction that the equipment business has taken 
since the early 2000s even that has made people kind of long for these kinds of clubs because the equipment has gotten so modern and engineered. Do you think there's a sort of yearning that people have for something a little more crafted? That's a really good question. I I honestly think that what has happened is is that that people have bought into the market of modern golf equipment and found that they haven't gained anything. Their handicap still stays the same. But, geez, I just spent three grand on equipment and two grand on a lesson, and I'm still shooting the same score. So they hear about this, and they go out and play it. They play from, you know, more forward tees, and all of a sudden they're shooting the same scores, you know. Uh, and so this is wonderful, you know, to actually make a set of wood-shafted golf clubs and equipment. And then someone like yesterday walks up to me and says, this is the greatest game in the world. Thanks for making my clubs. Chapter 4. Colin McNamara Crosses the Valley. If I were Colin right now, I wouldn't be in a very thankful mood. I walk with him on the 13th hole, a par 5, and he hits his second shot into some long fescue and loses his ball. He ends up with a 10. On the next tee, we have a bit of a wait, and I ask him if he's willing to talk again. Anything for you, Gary. <laughs> what kind of a day has it been so far? It's been a long day, but a, a very fun one. This last hole, you had a bit of a struggle. Yes. Um, th- these things happen. Do you think they happen more often in hickory golf? I think they do, yeah. Hickory golf is not a forgiving game. Um, that said, you know, I, I like to think that it doesn't reflect the person I am, that, <laughs> that score on that hole. Well, I guess what reflects the person you are is, is how you reacted to it. You're still pretty upbeat. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like there's an uncanny valley of of attitude right and I've, I've gone through the valley and now I'm up the other side so it's yeah. all gravy from here where you've let go in a it's, sense and you're just having fun I feel true freedom <laughs> Thanks, Colin. there is something semi-serious that I want to know from Colin I want to know whether days like this shake his faith I mean if I had a round playing hickories where everything went wrong I'd probably say you know screw it I'm putting the cavity back irons and the frying pan driver back in the bag tomorrow. Help is out there and I'm taking it. Is there, is there ever a moment? Do you have moments where you're like, I wish I was just, you know, playing with modern clubs right now? No, never, never. Yeah. I switched. This is now going into my fourth year with entirely hickories and I haven't once, I just gave away my clubs to my best man at my wedding a couple months ago, my modern clubs. I don't even have modern clubs anymore. I've never thought about them. And that is what I still can't quite relate to. The idea of not even being tempted. Is, is pain a feature or a bug of Hickory Golf? Boy, I really think it's, it's still a bug because it's still golf. But it's a bug that, that golfers love to have bite them. And, and yet, okay, so playing hickories enhances pain, right? I, I don't, if it does, you have to admit it also enhances pleasure though, right? The, the good shots feel better. 
even if the bad shots feel worse or more frequent. The good shots feel better. This reminds me of something I heard in the morning from John Henry Williams, the club repair guy. He was talking about introducing people to hickory golf. And when you give them a club and you take them out on the golf course and they hit that first pure shot, because hickory golf, the sounds are different. They're completely different. When you swing a a wooden shafted club or hickory club, it's a swooshing sound when the shaft is going through, through its motion. And there's no click when it comes off the club face. But man, when you hit one that is dead solid and it comes off, it feels so good because it all resonates up through the shaft into your hands. It, and you don't get that feeling with metal woods. You don't get that feeling with new clubs. It, it just, it's different. And when you experience it, it's just like, oh, that was so nice. And when you hit them bad, you get exactly the same feeling. That was just awful. So we're all familiar with those days when the swing is just a little bit off. When you're playing hickories, that can be pretty brutal. And so how do you get through those days? You know, you smile and you you talk to the the nerds following you. And um, really, it's, it's... kind of all about humor at this point and it's all about having having the attitude that you know I'm out here with clubs I love playing a game I love let's leave it at that meanwhile Colin's playing partner Andrew Von Lasso is making the game look easy on the 17th hole he bludgeons a drive down the middle and hits a low-spinning mashiniblick to two feet. The tournament is his. There's a small gallery walking the course, and the vibe is turned casual, almost party-like. Got a beer. Things are looking up even further than they were already. <laughs> Cheers, Martin. And that's when it clicks for me. Maybe a little too late. I've spent all day trying to understand why some golfers choose to play with hickory clubs, but I've missed the obvious thing. This is a group of friends. And once people are in it, they want to stay in it. Up by the 18th green, there's a big crowd waiting. The final foursome putts out, and each player gets applause and pats on the back. It's like the last day of summer camp. Let's keep in touch, and let's do it again next year. 74, 70, 72. Andrew Von Lassa. This episode of Fried Egg Stories was produced by me, Garrett Morrison, with transcript help from Meg Atkins. Many thanks to Rob Allswede, Northwest Hickory Players, and the Society of Hickory Golfers. And special thanks to Jason Bangild, who is the general manager of Gearheart Golf Links, and to Forrest Goodling, who's the superintendent. If you stick around after this music fades out, you'll hear a quick post-round interview I did with Andrew Von Lasso, the 2021 U.S. Hickory Open champion. We'd love to know what you think of Friday Stories, so feel free to reach out on Twitter or Instagram or leave a rating and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. It could have gone the other way if I had a bad attitude, you know? <laughs> Just yeah, exactly. get off. And I'm like, hey, relax. We're playing, 
playing hickory golf here. It's, it's a hard way to play. <laughs> what, what, what's the biggest challenge of playing hickory golf? I mean, you play a lot of you know uh, golf with modern equipment. You play qualifiers. You do all that stuff. So the biggest adjustment for you to hickory golf, what, what do you think that is? I'd say it's not quite slowing down your swing. You got to slow down your swing in a way, not take as much a big, not take a full swing. Like flight, hit flighted shots most of the time. And sometimes it's good to hit it up in the, up in the air, but like you know, it's not like the, the modern game where you're trying to just hoist everything. I normally don't, but just having that trust, like this club's gonna it's gonna be there, and you can hit these low draws or low fades, and you can hit it high also. But I find keeping it low to the ground, playing the links courses, it's like that's the it's how it's meant to be played. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's the biggest joy of, of playing with this kind of equipment to you? I'd say. Uh, Hitting it solid, I love that feel. And then the sound, it's that extra, like, this deep sound yeah. with the hickory. And same with hitting a solid club, modern club. I just love hitting it solid. Yeah. And then when you now when you're playing hickory second shots, drives, you're looking at more than just looking at the flag. You're like, hey, I got to play this left side here off this bank. Like that shot on 17 mm-hmm. was like, all right, I know the pin's kind of middle right. Well, let's look left. I know the green slope into the right. I landed in that area, took the slope, released out to a foot. And I'm like, now that was really satisfying because you're not going to fly it to the – if I have 88 yards, I'm not going to fly it 88. I'm going to fly it 75, have a release, and just play the course. Play the, you know, you're playing the course. So.